0: Mr. Hakuin's chant and praise of Sazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds in the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is that we lack?
1: Nirvana
0: is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is Tuesday, the twenty-second of March, twenty twenty-two, and this evening we're going to um, explore uh, working with panic and anxiety. And the first thing I'll be drawing on is a um, short article that appeared in Lion's Roar. And Lion's Roar is an, is an online media organization connected to the um, Shambhala tradition. And um, this appeared in it <clears throat> sometime earlier this year, I think, this article. It's um, by um, Minggu Rinpoche, a little bit of biographical material at the end of the, the article. Um, that they have here gay Mingyo Rinpoche is a meditation master in the Kaju and Ningma ling- lineages of Tibetan Buddhism he is the guiding teacher of the Turga meditation community a global network of meditation groups and centres um, he's written several books including one called In Love with the World which I'm pretty sure uh, I read from in Tasho. It told the story of his his leaving his uh, sheltered life in uh, living with his family, who were a family of of uh, Buddhist teachers. um, Leaving them, sneaking out um, in order to wander as a uh, mendicant. And um, a large part of the story is his getting extremely extremely ill from food poisoning and almost dying, but. Having extraordinary experiences of the the, um, intermediary realms in his in his uh, delirium, very powerful story. But this struck me. This 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 topic struck me as being probably one that quite a few of us could uh, learn something from. How I stopped my panic attacks. Um, There's certainly plenty going on at the moment in the world to trigger panic in us, or at least some stress or anxiety. Um, we have the war in Ukraine where millions have of people are now refugees having fled the, the destruction that's going on in these cities. I heard somebody describe Mariupol, this coastal city, as being a hell realm, or otherwise described as uh, apocalyptic so much of it has been destroyed and of course we have on top of this the fact that <clears throat> Putin has put nuclear missiles on alert and um, I have to say I think there's far too much talk from many people of of World War Three, and of course we have also had the pandemic pandemic with its continuing uncertainties um, and, and the urgency also of the um, climate crisis. In all of these things we might feel panic and we don't control what, what we feel, but um, sustained panic certainly doesn't help in any of these situations. It's often immobilising or it can uh, produce the very thing you fear, um, a couple of exa- topical examples. Um, apparently people, um, it on the news today that people in Russia are starting to panic buy because there's, there's shortages of large numbers of food items and of course panic buying produces shortages. Um, another example would be panic selling on the stock market which devalues the stock. So it's a, it's in a state in which we obviously um, work at cross-purposes to ourselves. So, um, learning to work with panic sounds like a good idea. And it is something that, that um, practice can equip us to do. I will turn to Mingyu um, Rinpoche. I suffered terrible anxiety in my childhood. I desperately wanted to run away from it or fight it off. I don't know exactly what the true cause of my panic was, but it manifested in many ways." We might guess that he was a very sensitive child. This, this could have been um, the kernel of it and then it would have grown over the years. He describes being terrified of snowstorms. In my hometown in the Himalayas, winter brings many snowstorms. I remember one in particular. The wind was so intense it shook the house, and my mother found me holding fast to the house's central beam. What are you doing, she asked. I said, I have to save us from this wind. Mum found this very funny and we can we can guess that he was here that he was trying to hold up the house help the house to stay up I found no relief in the summer either with its rainstorms full of thunder and lightning sometimes too we would go down to the Kathmandu Valley and I was really scared of the public transportation there. We would ride the bus and with each bump my heart would be bumping too. The sound of fireworks going off was a nightmare for me. I tried so many ways to deal with my anxiety, running, playing, escaping into the nearby caves to hide, but nothing worked. In fact, I learned that aversion only makes anxiety bigger, stronger and more solid. In effect, of course, um, anxiety is a a kind of aversion. Knowing how I struggled, my father, a famed meditation teacher, advised me to welcome my panic, so I dutifully began to greet each panic episode with, oh, hello, anxiety, welcome. It did help somewhat, but because my my motivation hadn't actually changed, I was not handling it all that much differently. My basic attitude was still aversion. Now I was just trying to outsmart the fear, thinking that if I welcomed the panic it would go away and not come back. You could almost say I was faking it. Even this fake welcoming helped somewhat, but it didn't resolve the issue. I was still going in circles, experiencing anxiety, experiencing anxiety and being anxious to be rid of it, which would in turn reinforce it. Um, Claire Weeks in her little book on the nerves, working with our nerves, she talks about the, um, the fear, adrenaline, fear cycle, how the, the fear arises and then we, we experience fear of the fear and that, that releases adrenaline and then of course that escalates the fear. This point he makes here about, about sort of faking it is, is I think one of all of us have probably experienced. We're told for instance in a workshop, um, every workshop we, we we talk about this with people, how to work with pain, how to move towards it, to lean into it and to soften around it and to relax. Um, but often um, when we hear this, we, we do it, but behind our doing that is a motivation to get rid of it, so we're not truly embracing it or, or leaning into it, we're sort of half doing that in the hope that that will get rid of it. So there's still that pull away as well as the movement towards, so they kind of cancel each other out. At 13 I started a three-year retreat at Ling Monastery, which was the main seat of one of my most important teachers, Tai Sito Rinpoche. I was hoping that in this structured environment I could escape my laziness. I just say, say here that um, structured environments can be really good for lazy people and for restless people as well. Um, my teacher Roshi Kolhi, um did a podcast recently where he talked about all the discoveries he's making having left the centre and gone to semi-retirement in Florida. And one of them was realising how much he relied on the structure. Of the centre which he was involved in for, I guess, 50 years, um, for his the st- structure of his days, and he's he realised that he he thinks he's had ADHD all along and not realised it because of it being in that environment, and he described a way that the the training environment is talked about in Asia. I hadn't heard it f- before. Putting a snake in a pipe, (laughs) so you straighten out all the kinks in the in the snake by putting it in this constricted space. So he was he was hoping that he could rely on on Mingyur Rinpoche was hoping he could rely on this this um, this structured environment of the the three year retreat to. Um, escape his laziness he says after a good start it began to creep back in eventually even the structured meditations in in the structured meditations my mind was all over the place and then of course when his mind was all over the place then his panic also returned and it got worse he says my laziness and my panic got together and became good friends. We can, we can imagine some of the things he might have been telling himself when his laziness and his panic got together. I can't do this. My panic proves I'm no good at this. I just don't have what it takes. I'll be found out. As a fraud, and I'll fail my family and embarrass them. No doubt these were the sorts of thoughts that were fueling his sense of panic, restlessness. The worse I felt about this, the stronger the panic got. Daily we met together in the great hall, sometimes doing traditional ritual practices with drums and the long loud horns called Dung Chens. My throat would tighten. I couldn't breathe. I'd get dizzy. I would have to leave in the middle of the prayers. And I had two more years to go. So it sounds like his his panic kicked in after he'd been there for a year. And in retreat, whatever's there tends eventually to come to the surface where we can deal with it. What should I do, I asked myself spend another two miserable years like this, or should I truly welcome my panic? I decided to really let go of wanting to block, to get rid of, or to fight it. I would finally learn how to live with it, and to use it as a support for my meditation and awareness. I welcomed it for real. I think often this this teaching of of, um, welcoming what is painful, we only really do it with great sincerity when we're, in, we're desperate. When we've tried every other strategy we can think of, and finally we little light goes on in our minds about become one with the pain. And we, we finally really do it with sincerity. What began to happen was that the panic was suspended in awareness. On the surface level was panic, but beneath was awareness, holding it. This is, is because the vital first step to breaking the cycle of the anxious mind is to connect to awareness. The vital first step to breaking the cycle of the anxious mind is to connect to awareness. You could say that it's connecting to the context of the panic in the sense of what holds it, what it, what it appears to us from within, when in. You could say that the thoughts and the feelings that we have that create the panic are the text, but our minds, as awareness itself is is the, the context or the, or the ground of the experience. And as soon as we, we're able to be aware of the context, then our mind isn't as, as, as narrowed down. Things open up. In meditation, we have different ways to achieve this, this awareness. One of the most basic and essential steps is to bring our awareness to the breath. Just gently rest our attention on the inhale and exhale without trying to change it in any way. And here are three meditations you can do to work with feelings of anxiety, fear, or panic. So then he gives us these three um, different ways of working. The first one is uh, to meditate on sound. Begin by sitting in a comfortable posture. Letting the body be relaxed and at ease. And that in itself may be ch- quite a challenge if we're experiencing a lot of panic and anxiety. And so we may have to really take our time on that piece. Work, uh, gently, gently work our way through different parts of the body and bring awareness to each of the areas from the top of the head to, to the soles of the feet. And at each and at each place, to just bring our awareness to it, to touch it with our awareness, without actually trying to do anything. Probably everybody's had the experience of of um, trying to relax the shoulders and finding that they just get more tense. And this this trying hard is is often a component in our anxiety, trying too hard. Let the body be relaxed and at ease. Take, you could say, he says, take a few moments to let awareness settle the body. We could say, take as long as you need to let awareness settle in the body, in all the different parts of the body. And just notice anything, any s- sensations that are present throughout the body. Next, be aware of any sounds that are present. These might be pleasant, like birds singing outside, something we th- ordinarily think of as noise, like a neighbor's dog barking, or something neutral. But whatever sounds you hear, just be with them. Notice how sounds arise remain for a moment, then disappear. We use a lot of sounds in Zen and it's for this re- very reason, or one of the reasons anyway, is because the sound, in the way that it, it, it comes into being, has a certain life and then fades away, is a, a, a teaching of impermanence. Notice how sounds arise, remain for a moment, and then disappear. There is no need to try to hang on to any specific sounds or disregard others. Simply embrace the sounds with a gentle touch of awareness. When images, thoughts, or emotions occur in the mind, there is no need to block them. Instead, allow them to accompany the sound, noticing how they can be present in awareness along with the sounds and at the same time noticing how they, they too have the same um, shape to them, they arise, they remain for a certain length of time and then they fall away. He says there's no need to focus strongly on a particular sound but simply know that you are hearing. The knowing is meditation. So again, the the awareness or the context, the ground. Notice how awareness can accommodate any sound without you having to do anything. And any thought is the same. Any sensation in the body it is normal for your mind to wander off. I can't count the number of people who've come after workshops to their first doksan and told me that they're they're, um, so discouraged because their mind keeps wandering off. As if it was something very, very specific to them. we have a simple response to this this wandering mind just bring yourself back every time it wanders in this case coming back to the sounds in one's environment then before ending the practice take a moment to appreciate what that you are capable of hearing appreciate that you have awareness and that you are taking time to familiarize yourself with this ever pre- present awareness. Often, really, don't appreciate our, our senses until they become in some way impaired. But how, how extraordinary that we should sense these vibrations that travel through through space and resonate on our eardrum we could add here another thing that we could do at the end of a practice like this and that is to to not only to appreciate that we have awareness but add a vow about how we intend to use that awareness how can we how can we express fully express our gratitude for our senses for our hands and our eyes and our tongues skin we can we can vow at this point to to benefit others to use our awareness our senses for supporting or or uh, helping others so that's the that's the first practice that he presents hearing sounds it is a it is um very much this, this um practice that sometimes people will take up in in Zen. It's it's described as being um, Kuan Yin's practice. Awareness of sounds. Of course Kuan Yin's full name, Avalokiteshvara, means She who who hears the sounds of the world. Second practice he calls changing the channel. He says, ordinarily the anxious mind focuses on the negative and magnifies it. Focuses on the negative and magnifies it. We fall into this. Fear, adrenaline, fear, cycle. Our anxiety makes us more anxious. We get anxious about our anxiety. And before we know it, it's spiralled out of control. But he says we can change the channel by doing the opposite. We can bring our awareness to the positive instead, perhaps by having gratitude and appreciation for the various types of good fortune we enjoy. The classic one in, in, in Vajrayana tradition is to remind ourselves of this precious human body of leisure and opportunity, this precious human life if you live leisure and opportunity. Traditionally in Buddhism we rejoice in having been born into a human body, in having the five senses, and being born in that place of freedom. And, of course, everybody has awareness, love, compassion, and wisdom. These are some simple things about being alive that we might appreciate. This this, this practice kind of leads on from the previous one, carries on from that same point. Finishing the practice with gratitude. This one we started with gratitude. You should understand that the anxious mind is always talking, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Yet it is not the essential self that is anxious. It is merely the mind having a lot of opinions. You are not the thoughts. This is a very important perspective to remember. Boy, is it an important thing to remember and how often we have to re-remember it. We are not our thoughts. This is, this is where we practice what they call in, um, uh, in some psychological methods, uh, defusion. Not, not fusing ourself to our thoughts, but being able to, to experience our thoughts as they rest in our awareness. To be able to pull back the focus to get that bigger picture how we frame what is going on is so crucial how we um, interpret what what we experience what we tell ourselves there was an article in the Guardian some time ago from 2020, about um, a very controversial uh, psychologist who's rethinking human emotion. Her name is um, Lisa Feldman Barrett, and um, she's she's really shaking up the the world of psychology with her new way of looking at human emotion she questions the uh, belief that the view that our feelings that feelings are innate and universal even something like anger which we think of as is pretty um, fundamental in, in our human nature. She says that anger is a cultural concept that we apply to hugely divergent patterns of change in the body. She says there's not a single facial expression, expression that is reliably associated with it, even in the same person. there would be interpreters of facial expressions that might disagree with her, but um, she goes on. Some cultures don't have a concept that corresponds to anger, such as the Utku Inuit of Canada's Northwest Territories. The same is true, astonishingly, of happiness, excitement, disappointment, you name it. No emotion is tied to a single, objective state in the body. Rather. Emotions are cultural artefacts. Um, she, she goes on to argue that the universal components of human experience are not emotions but changes on a continuum of arousal on the one hand and pleasantness and, unpleasant, and unpleasantness on the other. The term for this is affect. It is a basic feature of consciousness and people in different cultures learn to mould this raw material into emotional experiences in different ways. You can have high arousal and high pleasantness, and your brain might construct ecstasy, or low arousal and high unpleasantness, and you might create misery. Low arousal and high pleasantness might be satisfaction, and high arousal plus high unpleasantness could equal fear, or definitely panic. But you could also construct an instance of fear while feeling pleasant. In the example they give is um, riding a roller coaster. Or you, another one might be watching a horror movie, though there are many of us who might just have high arousal and high unpleasantness in those cases. They give another example of, of, uh, from a different culture among the Alangot people in the Philippines, high arousal and high pleasantness can be ligget, which Barrett glosses as an intense jolt of energy while actively and often aggressively pursuing a challenge with other people, like when playing football. That's pretty specific. But the point she's making here is that there's the, the physical experience that we have and then there's the way that we interpret it. How we, how we um, position it in our world. <coughs> Barrett's point is that if you understand that fear is a cultural concept, a way of overlaying meaning onto high arousal and high unpleasantness, then it's possible to experience it differently. You know, when you have high arousal before a test and your brain makes sense of it as test anxiety, that's a really different feeling than when your brain makes sense of it as energized determination, she says. So my daughter, for example, was testing for her black belt in karate. Her sensei was a 10th degree black belt. So this guy was like a big, powerful, scary guy. She's having really high arousal, but he doesn't say to her, "Calm down." He says, "Get your butterflies flying in formation." That changed her experience. Her brain could have made anxiety, but it didn't. It made determination. That's a, it's a beautiful example of um, how how it's 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 how we see what is occurring in our body-mind that um, determines our experience. Then the the Third um, way of working um, he calls break your anxiety into pieces we can bring awareness to any tactile sensations we're experiencing in the body that are associated with anxiety once we tune in to the many social sensations we are experiencing we realize that anxiety has many facets or pieces without trying to change anything Observe all those pieces of your experience. In doing so, you will find that you have physical sensations, for instance, the pulse racing or a feeling of constriction. There will be an audio component, if nothing else, the sound of your own breath. Or in the case of panic, it can get some pretty powerful tinnitus going on, or thundering in the ears. And then there will be visual images inside the mind. And there will be beliefs, or what is contri- traditionally called view. Oh, this is right, this is wrong, this is dangerous. Especially nowadays, in a world with so many competing views and forces bombarding us with projections and labels, we have all internalized specific views. Specific views, And we can, this internalization of, of views um, sometimes we recognise it, but sometimes we don't recognise that it may be internalised mother or father or primary school principal or, or English teacher or cause the voices from coming from our culture. Um, all of these can uh, be shaping our experience, and we, we more or less susceptible to them. We may be particularly susceptible to these kinds of voices uh, when we're stressed or tired. A friend whose whose daughter killed herself was telling me that she had, in the first year after she died, um, when she was grieving, she had this rule that she um, made for herself that she wouldn't listen to anything her her mind said between 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. She knew she'd be particularly vulnerable to the darkest of her thoughts. So continuing with this breaking up of the anxiety into pieces, he instructs, now you notice that what you were thinking of as one thing, anxiety, is actually made of four pieces. This multiplicity of pieces is always changing. There is nothing permanent there. At the same time, they're all dependent on one another to create this experience of panic. Without sensation, images, sound, and beliefs, there's no anxiety. All of these parts are interdependent, impermanent, and changing, going up and down, up and down. I think we can sometimes we can if we're in an acute state of panic, we may try out these things like labelling components of what's going on, and still feel pretty anxious. And my guess is it's because there are um, beliefs there that we haven't recognized, we haven't made conscious, and that we're still holding to be truths, and this colours our ability to to come out of the experience People who are listening online, we're just doing a little bit of sound meditation here as the rain rain is so loud we can't hear each other. So once you break it down in this way, panic loses its power. When you look at the deeper level of each piece and see there is nothing solid there, nothing permanent, the anxious mind loses power over you. And that, in that moment, is openness. Awareness is there, yet there is no grasping. Rest with that. When we are out in the world living our lives, we should practice appreciation consistently. Beware of all the gifts you have. Another really good time to practice this, this gratitude is uh, last thing at night, especially if you experience anxiety in the night to um, remind ourselves of our good fortune. It puts us in a good state of mind. No matter what our circumstances, there is always much to be grateful for. If you begin to feel fear, remember it is merely thought, just a bunch of opinions. And if a powerfully anxious mind arises, recall that in reality, there are so many different pieces of this experience and that they are all changing and inter- independent. There is nothing singular, solid or permanent about anxiety. Let the mind rest in this awareness. So these are the, these are the um, three, or really four, if we include gratitude, uh, practices that um, Ming-Yu Rinpoche suggests that we can use in, in uh, working with our uh, anxiety and panic. And you could see them, each of them as, as uh, skillful means um, in the sense of there being first aid, the first response to the situation of panic or anxiety. The, the uh, practice of gratitude addresses the, the need for us to find uh, contentment with what, is, what we're experiencing at any given moment. Uh, meditating on sounds brings us back into the present again and again, out of our, our um, um, panic-producing thoughts into what's happening right here and now. The changing the channel practice addresses the role that um, negative ideation plays in our panic. And, and breaking down the, the, our experience into pieces, um, sabotages our, our um, tendency to um, think about panic as in, in a global way, make assumptions about it, being solid and real. So all of these can be useful, especially in the first instance. But eventually, um, we need to, to address the root cause of our anxiety and stress. What, what, what is it that fuels it? And um, this is the next thing I want to look at. We've, we've run out of time now, um, but we will continue with this topic in the two te shows that will be part of our um, urban retreat Not this weekend but next week weekend And we'll stop here And recite the four vows
1: All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the